I want to talk to you this morning about uh, a theme, gosh, that God's just kind of led us on here. I want to talk to you about His grace, His amazing grace. And really, I I wanted to entitle the the sermon this morning, I wanted to title it His Outrageous Grace. Because it is outrageous when you understand it and you receive it. And you allow it to change your life. It just blows your mind. God is great. So I want to talk to you about His grace. Now, we're falling on the heels of this little... I never intended this to happen, but God has kind of given us this little series on uh, living supernaturally over the past month or so. And last week we took communion together. We came to the Lord's table together. And I suggested to you there were three things I believe the Lord wanted us to be reminded of. And uh, the first thing was that uh, God's not angry with you. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, if you're in the family of God, all of your sins have been punished. All of your sins have been dealt with. There's no condemnation. God is not angry with you, and He never, ever, ever again will be angry with you. Now, that is marvelous. And I had a number of people, both after the services last weekend and as well throughout the week, calling me and and dropping me a line or two saying, are you sure? (laughs) I said, I'm absolutely sure. I mean, we live, human beings, we live with a a sense of dread looming over our life. We may not be able to, to, to... put our finger on it, we may not be able to identify it and and give any specificity to it, but we do live with a sense of dread and a sense of fear of the unknown and a sense of our own guilt. And we try to assuage that guilt, we try to run and hide from that unknown, we try to bury our fears and our anxieties in all manner of ways. Drugs, alcohol, overeating, undereating. I mean, you name it, we get into it. Some kind of obsessive behavior to, to just bury ourselves in. Because we're driven. But with, with God, when you become a Christian, the good news, part of the great news, is that God's not mad at us. And He'll never, ever be mad at us again. And you don't have to perform for him to get him to smile at you. Isn't that great news? So finally we can go, You know, I thought that movie, I didn't see it, but the the title I thought was really great, Waiting to Exhale. And what what an apropos title. It's like everyone's holding their breath. And finally, we can exhale. We can rest. We can enjoy God's peace. The second thing that I believe God wanted us to be reminded of was that the church, his body, composed of people who have been changed, are a community of reconciliation. That we have, first of all, been reconciled to him. We have been reconciled to God. That's why he's not mad at us. There's reconciliation. We're reconciled to him. But we're reconciled to him through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered on that cross. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself so that we might be free. We've been reconciled to God. And because we've been reconciled to God, we can now experience 
marvelously a substantial, hear what I'm saying, a substantial measure of internal reconciliation. All of us know what it's like to one degree or another to stand in front of the mirror and say, I hate myself. I'm not happy with myself. Isn't that true? All of us, all of us, to one degree or another, have, have been frustrated with ourselves, frustrated with our performance, frustrated with our inabilities, and we find this separation internally. And it's because we've been reconciled to God, now we can be reconciled with ourselves. We can be at peace, not only with God, but with ourselves. I can rest. I can be me. It's okay. Wow. And that I can be reconciled with others. You see, there's a, this is part of the great dilemma that we face as people is, is division in relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with myself, relationship with others. But we're a community, a unique community. No other place, no other people has this. Other people feign it. They pretend it. They preach it. But nobody has it like the true church of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation. Healing, healing, healing. We're a community of that, beloved. Because of what Jesus has done. And the third thing that I believe God wanted to remind us of is that we can come because we're reconciled to Him. Because He's not mad at us. He'll never be mad at us. We can come with confidence to His throne of grace. And we can obtain Mercy and grace. We can obtain mercy and grace. Say that with me. We can obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. When I'm needy, when I'm needy, oh God help me. And I can be absolutely confident that he will help me. He'll strengthen me. He'll give me the wisdom I need. He'll provide for every resource that I need in my life. God, I need a job. He knows that. He'll provide a job. I can come with confidence to the throne of grace. All because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, beloved, all of that, all of that that we talked about, and much, much more, falls under this great umbrella we call grace. His amazing grace. His outrageous grace. And I want to talk to you some more about His grace this morning. Is that okay? Yes. All right. So I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. Put your finger in there and hold that place. We're going to come back to it. Now, in the meantime, I want you to close your eyes. I want to paint a, paint a picture for you. So I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to, to think with me and imagine, if you will, a courtroom, a courtroom setting somewhere in a stormy sky. Picture black, foreboding clouds. Picture cold, blowing wind. Picture this foreboding wrath hanging like silent thunder in that sky. An ominous, ominous and foreboding scene. And then suddenly, out of that storm, a voice speaks. The defendant will rise for the reading of the charges. And picture in your mind's eye a weak, a disheveled man, 
arms and legs in shackles, struggling to rise to his feet. And then the voice again. Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You are charged with the following crimes against the Lord your God and against your fellow human beings. And then the reading of the charges begins. Covering some 55 years, on and on and on it goes. And finally, the reading of the charges concludes. The voice speaks again. How do you plead? And after several moments of silence, the prisoner says, guilty. I'm guilty, Your Honor. And then after another moment of silence, the prisoner says, Your Honor. Your Honor. Lord. Lord. I plead mercy. I plead mercy. Now in this courtroom, there's no need for recess. There's no need for jury deliberations. No need for consultation in the judge's chambers. This judge requires no time at all to arrive at a decision. The defendant will rise and face the bench for the reading of the verdict. Now hold that picture in your mind's eye. We're going to revisit it in a little bit. Now I want you to look at 2 Kings chapter 18. You got the picture of this prisoner, shackled, foreboding environment, standing before the judge of all judges. Guilty of heinous crimes for over 50 years awaiting judgment to fall. Now we flash back. We flash back to the reign of King Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, we're told in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. Verse 3 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. David wasn't his literal father. There were 12 generations between them. But he emulated David in terms of his righteous rule. And so the chronicler identifies David as his father. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. These were all the places of pagan worship. You have to know, uh, after David and Solomon, Solomon, with Solomon's reign, David's direct descendant, 
uh, Solomon began to reintroduce pagan worship back into Israel. And as a result, the kingdom was split into the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And then there was a succeeding generation of corrupt and evil rulers and kings, both over Israel and Judah. Twelve generations worth. And so all manner of pagan, idolatrous, corrupt worship and worship practices took deep root, especially in Judah. Hezekiah comes to the throne. He immediately initiates tremendous spiritual reform in Judah and in Jerusalem. And with that, we're told in verse 4, simply, he removed the high places. These were places of pagan worship where idols were set up. He smashed the sacred stones. They would pile up stones and, and they would offer sacrifices on these stones. And he, and he cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah was a, a female pagan deity corresponding to Baal, the male deity. And Asherah was thought to be uh, a goddess. And, 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 and these poles were kind of like um, totem poles that we know of in Alaska. And uh, they were just giant phallic symbols. And they were used in, in licentious sexual worship practices. Vile, despicable things. Both heterosexual and homosexual worship went on. Worship practices. They have sex in worshiping of their gods. And these Asherah poles were the centerpiece of uh, much of that worship. So he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake... Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. If you recall back in the book of Numbers, uh, Israel had been particularly rebellious and God's going to bring judgment. But then uh, Moses intercedes on their behalf and God tells them, make a bronze serpent, just like the snakes that are biting and killing the people. Put it up on a standard, hold it up so all the people can see it and tell the people if they'll look at this, they won't die even if they've been bit by the snake. Jesus refers to that in John chapter 3. When he talks about himself and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so what had happened, the Israelites had taken this symbol of the grace of God and the mercy of God, and they'd made an idol out of it themselves, and they'd been worshiping this thing and offering incense to this thing. That's why we don't have statues in here. We don't have a cross in here. This room is just an auditorium. There's nothing sacred about this stage. It's okay for the kids to jump off it, moms. <laughs> for we are the church. We are the sanctuary of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We don't worship a building. We just need a building to meet in. There's so many of us. Praise God. So he, he even gets rid of the bronze snake. Verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And I love verse 7. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Oh, did you love that? 
the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. How would you like that on your, on your tombstone and your epitaph? What did your life stand for? What did your life count for? The Lord was with me. And whatever I undertook, I was successful. Hallelujah. Tremendous man, Hezekiah. Judah hadn't seen a godly, on-fire king like Hezekiah since David, 12 generations earlier. All you have to do is read the history in First and Second Kings and in Chronicles. But when Hezekiah finally died, his young son Manasseh stepped into his father's place. He took the throne. But though he stepped into his father's place, he didn't step into his father's shoes and walk as his father walked. You see, because Manasseh's first order of business was to reverse everything Hezekiah had accomplished in 29 years of uh, marvelous ministry in Judah and in Jerusalem. 29 years of righteous rule. And Manasseh replaced it all with a brutal and with a cold efficiency. He no sooner ascended the throne than he began to overturn everything that his father Hezekiah had initiated. Now with that, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I want you to read the first nine verses with me. Keep in mind now that picture of that man standing before the judgment throne, standing before the judge and the bench of judgment. Keep that in mind. We're going to get back to it. Second Chronicles chapter 33. We're reading about Manasseh now. I want you to contrast this with, with what we just read about Hezekiah, his father. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord God had driven out before the Israelites. So you remember, God drove out uh, pagan nations before the Israelites came in to possess the promised land. And these people, uh, it, it took hundreds of years for them to come to the fullness of their evil and their iniquity before God drove them out. The Bible talks about in Genesis, the iniquity of the Amorite, the iniquity of the Canaanite was now full, and they would experience God's judgment. God would drive them out of the land so that Israel now could come in and possess that land. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. The Baals were despicable gods. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He was in heavy into astrology, worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars and such. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. And in both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Can you imagine is God getting steamed over all this? Big time. 
He took the carved image he had made. That's one of the Asherah poles. He took the carved image he had made and he put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers. In other words, they had this great heritage in this land. It was a permanent residency. He said, I'm not going to make you guys leave. There's a condition here. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And indeed, judgment would come upon not only the northern kingdom of Israel, but also the southern kingdom of Judah. You just read about it. The Assyrians came down. The Medes and Persians came down. The Babylonians came down, carried them off into captivity, dispersed them, and all but obliterated the northern ten northern tribes and nearly obliterated the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Judgment fell on those people. They didn't obey God. But what's even more tragic is that here's Manasseh leading the people astray. His father before him had removed all the idolatrous high places that surrounded Jerusalem. And Manasseh went about and he found every one of those high places and rebuilt every single one of them. Hezekiah, his father, had removed all those licentious Asherah poles. Manasseh. Manasseh commissions an army of artisans to go out and to carve a forest of new Asherah poles and sets them up again. Hezekiah had lovingly purified the temple after generations of idolatry and after generations of degradation of the true worship to the true God in the temple in Jerusalem. Hezekiah had restored all of that, and and Manasseh comes along, and no sooner is he set up as king, he hauls back into the very temple courts one of those vile, freshly carved Asherah poles, sets it up only a few feet from the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies. You think God's getting steamed? Big time. Hezekiah was on record for a wholehearted national revival of worship of the one true God, Yahweh. The whole nation was coming together. Manasseh by contrast, would make religious tolerance and diversity the order of the day. Oh, let's just embrace everybody. Let's just embrace all religions, all gods, all practices. We're hearing that very same echoing today in the church, not just in society, in the church. We need to contend for the purity of the faith, beloved. He brought back a Baal worship. Baal is known as the dung god. The god of stuff. Filthy. 
He brought back the Asherah poles and worship to the goddess Asherah. He introduced again uh, divination and worshiping the stars and astrology and all of the vile practices that went along with it. He left no pagan god out of that pantheon of gods. He also brought back Molech. Molech was one of the most vile of the pagan gods in the ancient Near East. Molech was symbolized by a, the body of a man, the head of an ox. Moloch was fashioned uh, into by uh, using uh, iron or bronze even into a huge, huge, massive uh, pot-like structure with a huge, big belly open. And in some occasions, there were large protrusions, extensions, as if they were arms reaching out. And the practice would be to stoke up a fire underneath this iron figure and heat it up till it's glowing red hot. And as the thing is heating up and as it's getting hotter and hotter and it's beginning to glow red, the people in their worship would become mindless and they would be participating in ecstatic mindless chanting, dancing and singing to the beating of drums. You can hear it now. Boom, 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 boom. And people going crazy, losing their minds. And at the height, the, the, as the crescendo of all of this occurred, then the people would reach for their children, the babies, the toddlers and the youngsters, and they would throw them into this burning furnace alive. And in those cases where the idol had these extended arms, they were white hot. They would place these children on these arms and they were designed at an incline so they would roll right into the belly of this thing and into the fire alive. You could not even hear the screams of the children because of the chanting and the beating of the drums was so loud. It was a bloodlust. It was vile. You see, Manasseh left no iniquity out. He left no God, no pagan deity, no vile practice out. He invited it all in back to Judah. We're told that he thought it was such a progressive idea, the celebration and the festivities down in the valley of Ben-Hinnom around Molech, he thought it was such a great festivity. He took his own sons down there and came home by himself, came home alone. He sacrificed his own sons in the fire. His own children. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, the chronicler says this, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. You can imagine, maybe you can't, the gutters of Jerusalem running full streets with the blood of innocent people. The priests, the prophets, and those people who clung to the pure worship of Yahweh. 
there's one, one testimony about Isaiah that Manasseh hunted down the prophet of Isaiah, found him hiding in a, in a hollowed out tree trunk and ordered that the tree trunk be sawn in half in Isaiah with it. That's a tradition that's been passed down to us. I, I don't know how much truth is in that, but it would seem to fit. Verse 9 of Second Chronicles 33 says, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray. He had power. Demonic power was influencing people and led the whole of Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray into all of this godlessness and evil and perversion. Verse 10 tells us that the Lord tried to get their attention. They ignored him. They ignored him. When the Lord speaks, listen. Pay attention. Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Don't ignore the Lord when he speaks. And so we see what happens in verse 11. The result of all this. Inevitably. So the Lord brought them brought down now against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. Now the Assyrians, these are not Syrians, these are Assyrians. These were among the fiercest of all the ancient peoples. And God used them like a razor to shave the northern and the southern kingdoms absolutely clean. Brought judgment. And they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a hook in his nose. They bound him with bronze shackles and they took him off to Babylon in captivity. Yes! Hallelujah! Rejoice with me! Manasseh is gone! Yes! Hook him! Bind him! Drag him off! Throw him in the deepest, darkest dungeon to rot! You know, if Manasseh's life had been a movie and you and I were sitting in the audience watching this movie, at that particular point, when the Assyrians drug him off with a hook in his nose, shackled, you and I would rise up and applaud and shout. He's gone! Great relief. Amen? Amen? Gee whiz. Let me ask you a question. Down deep inside. Don't you just, don't you just, you look at injustice, you look at vile things, and you just wish somebody would do something. Don't we want to see punks and pushers punished to the full maximum? Do you want to see justice served? Or are you just going, eh, it doesn't matter okay no we want to see something happen I mean I don't know about you but I applaud the idea of rapists and murderers and child pornographers being sent to prison for a long long time and I don't even mind them being dispatched to eternity Ah, now some people are beginning to, you begin to understand a little bit about Manasseh here. 
I mean, how do you like it when someone on the freeway driving erratically cuts you off, nearly kills you and your family? Do you say, oh, well. Or you look around and say, no, where's the highway patrol? And when a highway patrolman speeds up and flashes their light on him, you go, yes, get him. Isn't that true? I do. Get him. I mean, I feel warm all over. I feel warm all over, man, when that happens. When cruel dictators are deposed and toppled from their positions of power and peoples are set free. Greatest thing. I want to suggest to you that if ever anyone had painted a divine target on his head, it was Manasseh. It was Manasseh. I mean, he wasn't satisfied just to match the debauchery of the pagan nations that God had destroyed before Israel. No. Manasseh went beyond them in every category of perversion. This man was absolutely, disgustingly vile. And he led all of Israel into evil. All of Israel. Now, if I could have been God for a day, If I could have been God for a day, I would have let Manasseh rot. Rot in his shackles in the deepest part of that Babylonian dungeon for the rest of his life. Very least, let him rot. No parole. No parole. No work release program. No college credit by correspondence. No conjugal visits on the weekends. I just let him rot. I just let him rot. If I were God. Just God for a day. Just let me be God for a day. But I'm not God. God is God. God is God. He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Something profoundly, profoundly disturbing happened one night in that dungeon cell of Manassas. Look with me at verse 12. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Beloved, I want to suggest to you that in his distress, he repented. He repented. That amazes me. But he repented. And it doesn't stop there. Look what else happens. Verse 13, God not only hears his prayer, but breaks him out of jail, takes him home, puts him back on the throne. I don't know about you, that 
that's outrageous to me. I don't have a category for that. I mean, think about it. Manasseh. It would be like bringing Hitler back and making him Chancellor of Germany. Right. Or Stalin. As despicable as Stalin was, bringing him back and making him Secretary General of the U.N., Or worse yet, making Saddam Hussein our new youth pastor. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. I mean, but this is what God did. This is exactly what God did. And God never bothered to consult us about it. (laughs) Manasseh was restored to the throne of his father David. And he was allowed to finish his reign in dignity and honor. Manasseh. If we didn't know better, if we didn't know God better, you could think somehow Manasseh pulled the wool over on God. Faked him out. And we know that's not possible, isn't it? That's true. Is that possible? Is it possible to fake God out? So the only other thing that we can look to Our only other alternative is the fact that must be that Manasseh's repentance was real. It wasn't feigned. It wasn't pretense. It was real. It was powerfully real. Something changed in his soul. His tears were genuine. His whispered confession in that Cell rang true. I want you to go back to that initial picture I asked you to paint. Here he is, Manasseh, standing before the judgment throne of God. Rise for the declaration of the verdict. I'm guilty. But I plead mercy. I want to show you something. In verse 12, when it says that Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord, one of the commentators I read suggested that in the Hebrew, you could literally translate the Hebrew phrase there that Manasseh stroked the beard. Or the face of God. In his distress. I'm guilty. But I seek your favor. He reached out. And somehow was able to touch God. 
And instead of the Lord recoiling in understandable disgust, in understandable revulsion, who of us would, oh, don't touch me, you filthy, disgusting person. We're told that God let his heart be moved. He let his heart be moved. I mean, it would have been merciful of God. It would have been merciful God, better than Manasseh deserved, if God had allowed him to live out his days in that dungeon. Isn't that true? That would have been mercy. It would have been mercy if Manasseh had been allowed just to return home to to Judah as a lowly shepherd. Would that have been mercy? It would have been mercy if he had been given permission to return to Jerusalem, not just Judah, Jerusalem, just as a beggar. Would that have been mercy? It would have been mercy if he had actually been permitted back into the palace just as a stable hand or a latrine attendant. Mercy? Yeah. But I want you to see something. God goes beyond mercy. God goes beyond mercy. Something unbelievably powerful happened in that reeking Babylonian dungeon. Something amazingly powerful. Something mightier than even the splitting of atoms in the reactor of a nuclear power plant. That's how powerful we're talking about. You say, Pastor, what happened there? Manasseh, when he reached up to God, when he called out in his distress, Manasseh tapped into this shining, shoreless reservoir. Uncomprehendingly deep. Beyond reckoning. Beyond understanding. He tapped into, beloved, the grace of God. You see, mercy. Mercy means that he didn't receive the punishment he so richly deserved. That's mercy. You don't get what you deserve. But God went beyond mercy to grace. And grace is... Very simply, that Manasseh did receive the favor, the kindness, the blessings of God that he surely did not deserve. Mercy, I don't get what I deserve. Grace, I get what I never deserved. Isn't that beautiful? You see God touching Manasseh's life? Standing before the bar, standing before... Judgment is about to be pronounced. And he pleads for mercy from a genuinely repentant heart. And God doesn't cast him out of his sight, but he embraces him. He takes him back to Judah and sets him back on the throne. I don't know about you, that just blows my mind. And how does Manasseh respond to all this? In the next verse, verse 14, we see that now he puts some feet to his repentance. He makes it real. And he begins to initiate 
reforms that were reminiscent of his father Hezekiah's administration. Manasseh actually begins to do the things that his father had done. Begins to institute these reforms. But it's far too little and far too late to forestall the impending judgment that would come on Judah. Tragically. But for Manasseh, Manasseh finished well. Manasseh served the Lord for the rest of his days. There's one nagging question to all this, however. One nagging question. And that is this. Was justice done here? Was justice done here? Did Manasseh get off scot-free? I mean, it's all very well for Manasseh to get back his throne, to get back his royal chariot, to get back his designer robes. But what about all of his victims? Was justice done? Do you think? What about all the voices of those little children who died so cruelly in the fiery belly of Molech? What about all those kids? Thousands upon thousands of them. What about all the prophets and the priests and those faithful believers in Yahweh whose blood filled the gutters of Jerusalem? What about their voices? Is justice done? What about all the desolate widows who had lost their husbands and the grieving parents who had lost their children? What about the orphans who had lost their families? Didn't any of these people rate a voice in the decision to acquit this mass murderer? Where's the justice? Does Manasseh just get off scot-free? What about all of his victims? Was it right for Manasseh to get early parole as he did? Was it just for him to be able to go back and put on that crown, to slip on his sapphire slippers and to shuffle through his sunset years in comfort and safety? Is that just? Shouldn't God have required restitution? What do you think? How many of you are outraged that Manasseh gets off scot-free? Some of you aren't sure. Theo, aren't you outraged? Don't you feel there's some major injustice here? Here's a mass murderer gets off scot-free. And his victims don't even get to approach the bench and plea for the maximum penalty. Where's the retribution? Where's the restitution? Shouldn't God demand it? Yes. Yes. In fact, he did require restitution. He said, where? I didn't read it. A very, very heavy price was required, and a very, very, very heavy price was paid. A price, beloved, beyond our comprehension. You see, a few short miles from the valley of Ben Hinnom, 
where Manasseh had sacrificed his own sons in that fire just a few short miles away. Another innocent son was sacrificed. Another son was forsaken by his father. Another son was consigned to death. Another son was writhing and died in the face of the jeers and the mocking of the crowds. But there's one difference. This son went willingly. This son went willingly. This son's death was not to appease the bloodlust of some demon god. No, this son's death was to pay the price for the reconciliation of man back to God. To pay the price of sin. And part of the tab, if I can say that, Part of the tab on that dark Friday on that little hill called Calvary, part of the tab was run up by a man named Manasseh. Fifty-five years worth of vile, despicable, murderous living. Part of the tab was run up by Manasseh. Beloved, but that wasn't the whole tab. I have some charges on that tab also. I added a few just yesterday, too. You have charges on that tab also. No doubt you've added some lately. But you know, somebody picked up that tab. Somebody picked up that tab. Somebody paid. It wasn't me. Someone picked up the tab light years beyond my credit limit. Light years beyond the combined credit limits of all of us. Somebody picked up the tab. That's mercy. That's mercy. Beloved, at some point in our own dungeons, if I can use this metaphor, in our own dungeons, when we were in distress, just like Manasseh, we looked up to a God that we barely knew, and we reached up to touch His face and to cry out, to plead for mercy. And like Manasseh, we too fell headlong into this golden, marvelous ocean of mercy of which there are no limits. Though my sin is great, His grace is greater. It would have been enough. It would have been enough just to be forgiven. Wouldn't it? Just to be forgiven. 
and not be plagued by all my sins and all the memory and all of my past and all the ugliness, just to have a clean slate. Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be wonderful just to be forgiven? I mean, it would be just wonderful just to be able to live out my days on this planet in absolute peace just to be forgiven. That's wonder enough. But to be granted a place in heaven? Wow. I mean, if the truth be known... I find myself most often just like the prodigal. Come home, repented, turned around. And just like the prodigal, all he wanted was just to be a a slave in his father's house. That's sufficient for me. Just give me a broom and let me sweep the golden sidewalks. I just want in. That's wonderful enough. It'd be wonderful enough just to sweep the sidewalks in heaven. To be forgiven. To be allowed entrance into heaven. But this is where God goes beyond mercy. This is where God goes beyond mercy. He doesn't just let me in. He doesn't give me a broom. Like the prodigal, what does he do? He clothes me in the royal robes. He shods my feet. He gives me the signet ring. I'm a son. He's made me a son. He's made me a brother to the Son of God. He's made me a co-heir with the Son of God to His kingdom. (laughs) Beloved, that's more than mercy. That is more than mercy. And He's filled my earthly life He's filled my earthly life with overflowing provision. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. He's filled my life with daily cleansing. He's filled my life with a vast storehouse of wisdom in His Word. I have the smile of his favor. When God thinks of me, he smiles. Oh, I love that. He's touched my life. He's anointed my life. God. He's gone beyond mercy. And I have the inexpressible joy of endless delight fellowship with him he says I'll never leave you nor forsake you I'm with you always I'm there he's filled my life beloved he's gone beyond mercy that's grace that's grace do you know his mercy And do you know His grace in your life? Pray with me. Lord, we are are dumbfounded. Dumbfounded, Lord, by Your amazing and outrageous grace. We do not deserve it. 
And Lord, it's not that we've pulled the wool over your eyes in any way. It's not that we have done anything that's so wonderful, but rather it's just purely your grace. You have reached out. And Lord, you've responded to our plea for mercy. You've reminded us again that we can come to your throne of grace and we can come confidently and we can obtain mercy and grace for our time of need. God, thank you. I thank you that you've made me a Christian. I thank you that you've caused me to be born again. I thank you that you called me before I was even conceived, before the foundations of the world, you knew my name. God, I'm a blessed man. And I thank you. And I thank you. And I thank you. Father, I pray for any in our congregation this morning who may not know you. I ask God that somehow you would have spoken to their hearts. Somehow.